Hello, it's Bernard Nomberg with the Nomberg Law Firm in Birmingham, Alabama. Thank you for stopping by the Nomberg Law Live podcast. Each week we have interesting conversations with people in their areas of expertise. Retired Judge Houston Brown is my guest this week, and what a treat. Judge Brown grew up in the civil rights era in Birmingham and shares some remarkable stories and life lessons with us that I think we all could learn from. We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Nomberg Law Live podcast. If you like this episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating and a review and subscribing will ensure that you get each podcast as they come out on a weekly basis. Thank you again. It is my pleasure and honor to be back on Tuesday's Nomberg Law Live after that fantastic game last night for us in the Deep South, Alabama fans. And I am so pleased to have a friend, a, a, I call him a colleague, call him a mentor and a neighbor. Judge Houston Brown is with us this morning. Good morning, Judge. It's so good to see you again. Bernard, it's good to be with you. And- Look forward to our visit this morning. Oh my gosh, I've been looking forward to this for for many days now. And and just to to kind of set the stage just a little bit, I hope I I don't butcher this, but Judge Brown is is now happily retired from Jefferson County as a circuit court judge. He was our presiding judge for several years. I had the honor of appearing in some of my cases in front of his honor. But gosh, it's not about me. Judge, if, if you guys don't know Judge Brown, you need to stick around and watch this and listen to Judge and go and just hear some of his his stories. And the 30 minutes that we've got here is not going to do it justice, but we're going to do the best that we can uh, right now. Uh, Judge Brown grew up in Birmingham, is a proud product of the Birmingham City System. Uh, Parker High School, which has such a rich history, only a few miles, not far from where he lives now. Uh, and, uh, close to downtown Birmingham, Talladega College, Cumberland School of, of Law, and has been an attorney since 1973 and retired happily in 2015 and was also a former law partner of one of the, my prior guests, Jay Mason Davis, uh, here in town, who's told his story uh, on our show. So, Judge, I'm so pleased to, to be able to spend some time with you today. So thank you for, for making some time. You're so very welcome. Absolutely. And Judge, let, let's start in the present. We'll move back into the to the past. And, and I know most folks who do know, you know that you're you're happily retired. But once a lawyer, always a lawyer. And I know you keep your hand and ear to, to what's going on around things. And not that I mean, we could open this up to just a political or just a, a law uh, discussion. But I guess where I want to start is is civility. And that's one of the things that has always uh, been in the forefront of my mind when someone mentions you or I'm in front of you, and that's civility within the law. And we don't see a lot of that nationally right now. Hopefully times will will calm down as we move forward with the transition to the new administration. But I guess I want to ask you your approach. You've been through so much for so many years and just fought so many awesome battles. What does it mean to have civility in the law when you're dealing with legal matters? Bernard, it's the 
it's really truly the only way and the best way to proceed in a system that begins adversarially. Uh, you're already divided. You're pro and con, black and white, red and yellow. And uh, the only way to really try to get to a point where you can hear one another, where you can understand positions, uh, is to be civil. Because when you are not civil, you are highly emotional. When you are emotional, you hear only generally what you want to hear and not sometimes what you need to hear. So proceeding civilly is, is, is just extremely important. And what I've really truly learned is this, is you have to go back to ancient times uh, and those old, uh, no care what religion you're in, we have similar uh, instructions uh, from the past and that is treat people the way you want to be treated. If you do that, if you extend to them, they will generally, generally, nothing's perfect, but generally they will return the respect. And if you get to that point, you can most often uh, resolve difficult cases, resolve difficult issues uh, through negotiation and, uh, and, and avoiding trial. I tried as a judge to extend to all of the lawyers that appeared in my court, the respect, uh, the, the uh, capacity to hear them and to understand. And I would always instruct them, if you think I don't understand, speak up, don't close up, speak up. Let me know, let me hear you. And you will not be punished in any way for that and and it and it worked it worked so often that uh, uh, lawyers began to understand who came to my court on a regular basis uh, they began to understand that they could do that and they did it and it worked out really well civility is absolutely necessary and if you look at the recent events in our country you will see that we are truly lacking in civility uh, and uh, I don't know how we're going to get back there, but uh, one guy said it the other day, uh, and that is that he, excuse the phone, that he uh, believed that the only way to get back to civility would be to tell the truth. And truth is, truth, truth will uh, <laughs> resolve so much stuff. And uh, so maybe if we get back to telling the truth and not trying to uh, uh, extend our own political and social and economic positions uh, unnecessarily, uh, we, can, we can get back to some civility. I, I just, I, there, there's nothing better than the truth, whether yes. it hurts or helps, it clarifies. And it just resets everything. And we don't have enough of that. One of the things that I am proud of though, within my section of the Alabama State Bar and Workers Comp, yeah. we have some pretty good civility. There's a limited number of attorneys on both sides of the, these cases and we know each other fairly well. 
But that doesn't mean that even though we have familiarity, we can't still represent our clients to the utmost. So judge, what I wanna ask you, and this may be a fair, I mean, an unfair question, but I'm gonna see if we can, uh, can approach it. When you were a young lawyer coming up in the, in the 70s and were in private practice well before you got onto the bench, I'm sure that just as a young lawyer and your uh, law firm and, and the type of work that you did, you faced a lot of hostile uh, adversarial opponents in your cases. And my question to you is, is there any comparison? We're talking about civility here. Is there any comparison to what you went through in the 70s as a lawyer representing your clients as opposed to what you saw at your last years on the bench or even currently what's going on in today's times? Is there a comparison or is it a complete different, um, I guess, dynamic would be the word? It, the 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 but uh, the the issues are basically the same. They have not really changed. The the methodology, however, mm -hmm. has changed. Mm -hmm. uh, even in the seventies, uh, there were lots of guns, mm -hmm. but they were not nearly as prevalent as present and and just kind of seemingly uh, uh, free people are free to use them, free, uh, use all sorts of violent uh, things. Uh, the most recent thing up in Washington, a uh, man from our state uh, with napalm that he had fixed up in little bottles and pipe bombs designed to really uh, hurt and, 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 you know, it's just, it's just amazing. I don't, wow. I don't know how to cut this off. Uh, no worries, judge. Okay. No thank worries you. at all. All right. Uh, thank you very much. And I apologize for that, but um, I, I find that the issues are the same and, and I find also that uh, uh, the, the, the number of people who express ideas, actions, and notions different from my own have grown, the actual numbers. And it may be an organization that a lot of people don't want to deal with, but I routinely read the reports of the Southern Poverty Law Center. And, uh, and I don't think that they deal in falsities uh, and that the truth is reflected in their reports that 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 population of people has really grown, and uh, so I think we're in a time where we're going to have to do what you said just a few moments ago. We're going to have to reset, and we're going to have to redirect, and we're going to have to spend a lot of efforts realizing where we come from and where we've got to go in order to have a good civilized society, et cetera. And Judge, maybe that comes with the new administration. The, the swearing in, the inauguration is next week. Mm -hmm. I, I know we don't have all the answers here today, but I'm very interested in, in what transpires with the new administration and the tone that they set and so forth. 
but I, I wanna I wanna pivot for a few minutes, if you will. I wanna go back to your childhood. For those of you who don't know, Judge Brown grew up in a uh, section of Birmingham that was very much under siege at times and attacked uh, for many years during the very turbulent civil rights era. You grew up in a neighborhood across the street or on the same block as the Shores family and many other notable uh, families who were part of clergy or part of the law. And Judge, I've, I've heard you say many times about some of your, your stories. And I know that at least I have to assume all of those life experiences shape a person's uh, approaches to life and how they, they deal with things. And I want to ask you, if you will, can you share some of those experiences that people may not know about about some of your past? Uh, yeah, I don't think we can do a very good job of it, Bernard, in such a short time. But yes, sir, I, I, know, I, I know it's an unfair question. I grew up in an area uh, that was known as Smithfield and maybe have was the first... Um, suburb of Birmingham. Uh, Smith, the whole land was owned by the Smith family. And uh, uh, the uh, it was subdivided so that there were two sections. One had was named College Hills, which is adjacent to and across the street from Birmingham Southern. And, and the other was Smithfield, which stretched uh, basically from the uh, railroad tracks uh, in Southern Smithfield, all the way to the uh, Jasper Highway, which is Highway 78. Um, and uh, familiar, I am pretty sure to you because across the street from that area were the two Jewish cemeteries. And I used to walk through those every day to go to elementary school. And, and back home. But uh, in any event, what the where we lived uh, turned out to be uh, the uh, named Dynamite Hill. And it's known throughout the world as Dynamite Hill because there was some 35 to 50 bombings uh, in the area, not a single one of which was ever resolved, solved, or anyone prosecuted. They had to do with people who uh, moved across Center Street. And Center Street was the dividing line. People don't know that that was the red line. In other words, if you lived on the western side of Center Street, uh, you, uh, it was all white. And on the eastern side of Center Street was all black. And then from Center Street all the way to the beginning of downtown Birmingham uh, was black. And on the western side, all the way through Bush Hills into Inslee was all white. And at some point in time, Arthur Shores, God bless his soul and God rest his soul, filed a, a complaint in the federal court uh, seeking to uh, uh, challenge the uh, racial zoning ordinances of the city of Birmingham uh, for a lady 
family whose name was Monk. The Monk house was on Center Street. Well, the Monk's property was on Center Street on the wrong side of the street. And Ms. Monk and Mr. Shores went to court and they won the case and, and uh, she was able to build her house. And as soon as she got near the end of the construction and moved in, they bombed it. And from that point forward, there were a number of bombings uh, uh, that just went on uh, throughout. I, the first one that I can recall was when I was about seven years old and I hid under the bed for about three hours. They were looking for me and couldn't find me. And uh, uh, I was right there, but uh, it was such a, a tremendously frightening thing because one of the cabinets in our kitchen fell and it contained most of the uh, dishes uh, that my mother had. And so that's a crash that I will never forget. I will also never forget the smell of the dynamite. Uh, once you've smelled it fresh, you will never ever forget it. It's a, it's a very foul odor, uh, very strong odor. And uh, it was so frightening, I didn't know what to do. Uh, fast forward from that point, I, there were so many uh, things we had to uh, uh, have cars uh, in the neighborhood with men in them all night long, every night, in order to protect uh, uh, those citizens who were actively engaged and involved in the struggle for civil rights. And uh, one of which uh, parked in our garage every night. And I was responsible for uh, going and getting the unlocking the cabinet, getting the rifles and the and the uh, uh, walkie-talkies, which is what they used at the time, and other stuff. Had to get up in the middle of the night. And my mother would fix them in sandwiches and all sorts of things, and I would take that downstairs to them, and et cetera, et cetera, and uh, uh, all the way to when I was uh, in college and came home. Uh, one uh, weekend, I walked in the door and um, uh, uh, the my mother was looking at me to see if I had been eating properly. <laughs> As mothers do. As mothers do. And, uh, and I, so I was still standing at the front of the, the house about four or five feet from the door and uh, a bomb went off right across the street somewhere in the vicinity of 75 to 80 feet away from our house. That bomb was uh, the second bomb in August of 1963 that went off at the residence of Arthur Shores. The first bomb went off on the opposite end of the house, which would have been uh, more than a hundred more or additional feet. And um, the Birmingham News wrote a article that said that the bomb went off, at the time that the bomb went off, the family was in the opposite end of the house where the bedrooms are located. So they came back three weeks later and blew up the other end of the house. So I ran across the street and and you'd have to see the lay of the land, but it's, it's, a, it's an incline, it's a hill, 
and, and that's why they called it Dynamite Hill. But uh, 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 there was a police officer already uh, engaged in my driveway, backed in, sitting on the passenger side with his feet on the ground, with his riot gear on and his uh, sawed-off shotgun in his lap, told me to go back in my house or he would shoot. And I told him he'd have to shoot me in the back and I kept running and uh, helped Mr. Shores get through his house to his wife who was injured in the blast at that time. That was in 1963 in August. Of course, September saw the bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church where I had two very, very close family friends to lose their lives in that instant incident. And uh, uh, it's it, the bombings. I can tell you so many other things. Uh, getting put in jail one time for a bunch of teenagers coming back from uh, a, a picnic that we had up in Springville. Um, and uh, we got put in jail in Tarrant City because we ran into a Ku Klux Klan parade. We didn't know anything about it, but we did. And uh, then when they finally let us go, after harassing us for several hours, mm -hmm. we get to the Birmingham line and we get arrested again and we get put in jail in Birmingham. Wow. And after several hours, I mean, those were common events, you know. Now they didn't do anything to us. We, we, we were safe uh, and I have to admit that, but it's it just harassing stuff like that was very consistent and persistent throughout that time. Wow. Well Judge, such powerful experiences that you've lived through and, and gone through. We all know that 1963 for the United States and, and particularly in the South was such a, a pivotal year for civil rights uh, for many reasons. Uh, George Wallace in the schoolhouse, I mean, in the, in the at University of Alabama that summer with his famous stance, Medgar Evers was assassinated Mm -hmm. uh, and you mentioned the 16th Street uh, bombing in, in uh, September in downtown Birmingham. Mm -hmm. But one of the events that I know you attended that I think you've called the, one of the seminal moments of your life was in Washington, D.C. at Dr. King's speech. Would you share a little bit about that experience with us? I'd be delighted to, uh, Bernard. It, it was... Uh, um, uh, for a youngster, it, you know, we were excited and did not know uh, what to expect. Mm -hmm. We had no, no rational, no, no experience that could give us any rational basis to mm -hmm. reach a conclusion as to what, what to expect. And when uh, we got there, people started coming and it, and, and it appeared to me uh, that they weren't going to ever stop coming. <laughs> they came and they came. And I happened to have been, if you were facing the, uh, the dais, I was to the right side, about 70, 75 feet uh, from, away from the uh, uh, stage area, which is actually not a stage. It is the memorial itself. Uh, but they use that area as a stage. And um, uh, I guess I can say this, that 
it was uh, it was amazing. The, the the first amazing thing was to see men, women, children, black, white, red, yellow, brown, even in that day, and Jewish, Italian, Polish, Native American, African Americans, all together at a time where there were at least by the Park Service estimates, some 200, 250,000, by other estimates, well over 350,000. Mm -hmm. But it was, it was a day that was peaceful. There were no incidents that I can recall and the newspapers reported the next day that there were none. Uh, jump forward to Barack Obama's first inaugural that for a 24 hour period in Washington, DC, there were no arrests. Um, it, it, it's, it's amazing what can happen when good things happen. And, uh, but the, the uh, March on Washington in 1963, upon the conclusion of Martin Luther King's speech, I had tears in my eyes and I don't know if I was trying to hide them. You know how little boys are. <laughs> but uh, I turned to look back at the crowd. And almost everybody I looked at had tears in their eyes. It was a remarkable event. It will stand in my, indelibly in my mind for the rest of my life. Uh, uh, even if I started suffering from dementia, I think I will remember that day. And uh, but uh, it and uh, I'm I'm delighted to have have been there. And it, it you may not understand, but that he had written his letter from a Birmingham jail in the early spring of the same year, and it had started making its rounds. And so I had a copy of it in my apartment at the time. And uh, we were reading and discussing and talking and fussing and arguing about different, different phraseology in the, in the speech. And, uh, and then to hear him, which was my first time personally, and uh, it was just remarkable. And uh, I left there, uh, we talk about psychology, and I'm going to get this in right quick. 1963, I wake up, I'm very positive. Martin Luther King comes to town in the spring. And they, they being the leadership of Birmingham, decides it will uh, not uphold an agreement that they had reached. And they went back to doing the same old things. So we are all upset. He then gets arrested, writes his letter. Then uh, we move on to uh, uh, George Wallace and the schoolhouse door. Um, uh, we, we move to 
the next day, Mega getting killed in Mississippi. And then we go to August to the March. And then I get positive again. And come home, go to school, come back and the shores house bomb twice. Mm -hmm. And then I lose two of my little girls uh, in, in the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing and I'm back negative again. That's a, that's a sort of a, a, a schizophrenic experience where you're going from uh, 180 to 360. The roller coaster of emotions every month. Yes, sir. That you're dealing with. And then two months later, mm -hmm. President Kennedy is, Kennedy is assassinated. Absolutely. And, and I, my time is your time, Judge. I'll spend as much time talking and listening to you as you have time available for us. So I thank you for, for so far sharing those powerful memories with us. And I think it's so important to, to reflect and to share kind of an oral history of, from those people who've been through these experiences. But here, and we're getting close toward the end, Judge. Yes, sir. Uh, my question, I guess, where I want to lead next is toward the end of 1963, you had not gone to law school yet. You're still in, in college. And you've gone through such a turbulent 1963 and in the years prior. At what point going forward did you, I guess, renew your optimism, renew that faith that good would be restored, renew that determination, not that it ever left you, but just had that renewal, if you will, that things were going to improve and, and be all right as time went went on. Did you ever get to that point as a young man? Uh, I think that's why some of my family says I'm crazy, but uh, <laughs> a good uh, crazy. <laughs> Bernard, the the um, uh, study of the history of the black man in America is the study of the very broad emotional movement that we have had to live with consistently and persistently. And it was somewhere in there, and I can't tell you which, which one, but I began to understand that in, in and around 1500, 1492, 1500, when the first, quote, explorers, they weren't explorers, but that's what we call them in our history. When they got here, they had slaves on the slip, ships. Uh, the Caribbean had become a slaveholding uh, place, island to island to island. And and uh, I, I, I began to think, I was probably very down, and I began to think one night that if somebody could lie in less than two feet of space on a ship down under, for a couple of months to sail across that land 
to sail across the water and get to the new world and be sold and live and make it, then so can I. And then I came on through slavery. And then I came up through uh, reconstruction. Think of all the goodness. I listened to all the newscasts the other night after the Atlanta senatorial races had concluded. And to a person, they said that, uh, that Reverend Warnock was the first African-American uh, from the South to serve in the Senate. Well, that's not true. Hiram Rhodes Revels served during Reconstruction, served well, highly respected. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it, that, that's a positive move. Then after Reconstruction, we come into Jim Crow and, and all sorts of stuff. And so what I, what, what I do is I go back and I go back. If my ancestors could live through what they lived through, I can live through what I'm experiencing today and hopefully maintain and come out of it in a positive way, with a positive attitude and with an attitude of continuing grace to those who will receive it and return it. Gosh. Judge, that, that is, that's so powerful. In the times that I've been around you, and I've known you for, for more than 15 years now, particularly when you were on the bench, that, that thought process, that approach to life was, is, is so clear to me now as to how you conducted yourself on the bench, how you dealt with counsel, and, and how I've now known you even better in the neighborhood over the last couple of years. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I know, I know that's not easy. Well, I don't know that. I assume that, that it's not easy to share with anyone, but I truly thank you for sharing that because that, that just sets everything in, in, it just puts it in its place in, in so many ways. So thank you for, for sharing that, Judge. Thank you, Bernard, and, and thanks to your parents for those Nomberg boys. <laughs> well, Enjoy. thank you. I will certainly, I, I assume maybe both of them may be watching right now or they will watch today. Oh. Gosh, I, I don't know how we can, I mean, I can talk to Judge for hours, but we need to wrap it up, at least for this conversation now. This is such a, a, a fantastic conversation for me, Judge. I hope that that this was okay for you to share your story, a brief glimpse into your life and uh, the wisdom, the experiences and the life lessons are just incredible. So thank you. Thank you. Well, guys, it doesn't get any better than, than this. Incredible stories from people in their areas of expertise and, and you heard it from Judge Brown right here. So thank you for tuning in. Thank you for all the awesome comments. We're always tuning in at 10 o'clock on Tuesdays, and we will catch you again next week. Be well. <laughs>